Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the seventh chapter of First Corinthians. First Corinthians seven. If you're just uh, learning to find your way around the New Testament, it is almost exactly in the middle of that uh, portion of the Bible. You can find Romans. First Corinthians is the uh, next book in line. I mentioned last week that this letter is in part a response to a letter that the Corinthians had uh, addressed to Paul, and he is now taking up in series the matters about which they had written. And in verse uh, 8, he says, Now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they are not controlling themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this command, not I but the Lord. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she has, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. To the rest I say this, I not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbeliever leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And then if you'll turn to the last two verses of that chapter, verses 39 and and 40. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Not as long as the marriage lives, not as long as you shall love. She is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I, too, have the Spirit of Christ. Now, I I confess to a great deal of uh, reluctance in engaging in this subject of divorce and and remarriage because it is a highly controversial subject, (coughs) pardon me, emotionally charged at at, at almost every, uh, every level. There is probably no unhappiness like the unhappiness of a, of a bad marriage. And I want to be very sensitive to that this morning. I do not want to run roughshod over your feelings. But I want to say that I sincerely believe that divorce is not God's way. And I believe that his will is intrinsically good. As Paul puts it in Romans 12, God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. 
I, a couple of years ago, read a a portion of a book by Joseph Epstein entitled Divorce in America. And though I don't think that uh, Mr. Epstein is a believer, he did comment on the fact that the decline in marriage fidelity these days is directly related to the decline in religion. That's the way he put it. I would say that it's related to our willingness to submit to the will of God. There was a time in our country where we took God seriously and we took his will seriously and people stayed with their marriages because God asked them to. The next generation, my generation, stayed with, uh, we stayed with our marriages not because our, our culture had any faith but because there were there were some strictures built in. There were some, some supports to marriage that society sincerely uh, believed in. Epstein likens it to a medieval cathedral. You know, during the medieval period, they began to clean out the inside of their cathedrals so that they would have more open space and they had no supports on the inside. The structure was supported from the outside by flying buttresses. And uh, it was society that held our marriages together, this external support. But what's happened of late is that there's been a relentlessly hammering uh, various elements within society, hammering away at these uh, supports, eroding them away. The women's movement, the civil rights movement, the human potential movement, these have conspired to strike down the traditional taboos against uh, divorce, soaps, novels, checkout stand tabloids, hair salon magazines, talk shows like Donahue and and Oprah, billboards, anything that can be remotely called a medium is inveighing against uh, this notion of, of staying in a marriage. Even the commercials do it quietly and insidiously. I'm sure some of you have seen the aspirin commercial of this dear young mother standing ankle deep in orange juice and cracker crumbs, and she has one baby hanging onto her leg. His diapers are obviously very damp and about to fall off, and she has another baby in her arms, and she has a terrible headache, and she's she's pleading with the camera to do something about her uh, her state. And marriage is presented as something uh, very hard and grinding and something to be avoided, if at all possible. And our friends are no help. If we go to them and talk to them about our marriages, they will say, yeah, he's a jerk, he's a creep, you deserve someone better, and, and they provide no support. And unfortunately, there's a spate of books being written by Christians along the line. Uh, they're hard to describe, but... There's probably one description that fits all of them. God led me to leave my wife and kitties and find love in the arms of some other woman, and it's all justified. And so there, there's very little support for us out there. In fact, all of the lures, all of the attraction is there to pull people out of their, out of their marriages. And I sincerely believe that that's wrong. As I said before, I believe that our Lord's teaching on divorce, though it is one of those hard sayings that we have to wrestle with, is intrinsically good. Now I want to look at the passage. I got razzed this last week because I never have an outline, and so I'm going to give you an outline. It is not one I made up. I discovered it. I wouldn't know an outline if I saw one. 
except uh, this one is pretty obvious. Paul uh, does a good job <coughs> of, uh, of uh, giving us a clear direction. Verses 8 and 9 are addressed to the unmarried and widows. Now, by unmarried, he means those that are divorced. Because in verse 34, he distinguishes between an unmarried woman and a virgin. A virgin, in Paul's terminology, is someone who's never been married. An unmarried person is someone, if I could coin a word, who has been demarried. They were married. They are no longer married. So he is addressing himself in verses 8 and 9 to men and women who have at some time in their life been married, have lost, lost their spouses through divorce or through death. In verses 10 and 11, he speaks to those that are married. And here he has Christians in, in mind. In verses 12 through 14, he speaks to those he describes as the rest, that is, those who are married to non-Christians. That was a problem then as now. A number of uh, men and women had non-Christian spouses. They were wondering how to... Uh, deal with that uh, difficulty. Paul gives his, uh, uh, lends his wisdom in those verses. And then finally, in verses 39 and 40, he uh, speaks of those who have lost their spouses through death. So that gives us an outline to follow. The other thing I'd like to say about this section is that the key word here is the word remain. It occurs a number of times. Uh, it appears in verse 8 when he speaks to the uh, to, to those that are divorced and to widows, it's good for them to remain unmarried. It, it's not clear in the NIV text that that word is there, but uh, that's Paul's word. Occurs again in verse uh, 11 when he speaks to the married. Uh, if a wife has separated from her husband, she should remain unmarried. Uh, it occurs again down in verse 24. Brothers, each man is responsible uh, to God should remain with God, literally. It's a key phrase because that gives us the basis on which we can stay with a marriage. And then uh, finally in verse uh, 40, uh, with reference to uh, women whose husbands are deceased, she is happier if she remains as she is. So that's the key idea. It carries all the way through this section to stay put. That's Paul's idea. Your circumstances are not merely circumstances by choice. That is a call that God is extending to you. And uh, his, his uh, word uh, repeatedly through this section is to remain in those circumstances in which you find yourself. Now, let's, uh, let's take a look at the uh, details of this, of this passage. He speaks first to those who were formerly married. Now, to the unmarried, that is the divorced, <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Shoveled too much snow yesterday. Now to the divorced and the widows, I say it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. Paul, as I mentioned last week, was undoubtedly married. He was probably divorced. His wife may have died, but he was probably divorced. Uh, she divorced him when he, uh, when he became a believer. Uh, it is good for them to remain unmarried as I am, but if they are not controlling themselves, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn uh, with passion. Now, here Paul will begin to play on this idea of staying put right where you are until God 
extrude you. Now, he is not saying that the single state is better than the married state. He's simply saying it's good. We will spend quite a bit of time next week talking about the importance of staying single, the greater value uh, in terms of service for staying single. But Paul is not saying that you are more holy than anyone else if you remain single. He is simply saying that it is okay you are all right. You do not need to be fretful. You do not need to be hustling. You do not need to be looking for another meet, a mate. God knows uh, precisely what your needs are, and you can rest in his, uh, in his good and perfect will uh, for you. But, he says, there's a proviso here, uh, if you are not controlling yourself, you should marry. Now, it would appear that what Paul is saying here is if you're having trouble with your sexual drives, then just go out and find yourself a mate. But we talked about that at length last week. That's not what Paul is saying. He is saying that if you are in love with someone, this is someone you really care about, uh, if this is someone that you would want to marry, if this is someone who wants you because of your godliness and character and not because of your body, if this is someone that you feel will make a congenial mate for you, if this is someone that you believe God is leading you toward, uh, to whom God is leading you toward marriage, and you're having trouble controlling yourself, you can't stay out of bed with one another, then it's better to go ahead and, and marry. Paul would say that's the best course for you. There's a reason for that. It's because sex outside of marriage ruins a relationship. I would not do this, but I, you know, if I wanted to ask for a show of hands, how many of you can affirm that that's true? It'd be hands that would come up all over the, uh, all over the uh, auditorium. It's just simply a fact that uh, you stop getting to know each other when you become physically involved. Uh, you stop probing one another's souls and spirits and minds. The, the relationship begins to uh, center on the physical aspect of, of, your, uh, of your time together, you're preoccupied with it, and you do not spend time really getting to know each other. And it eventually begins to erode away your intimacy along with the guilt which uh, Christians feel and should feel. And uh, it, is not, uh, it is just not a good thing. There is a poignant little poem that uh, uh, George MacDonald wrote it uh, goes like this. Alas, how easily things go wrong. A sigh too deep. A kiss too long. And then comes a mist and a blinding rain. And life is never the same again. And uh, I'm sure that many of you can agree. You know what uh, McDonald is referring to. Now, uh, the second uh, issue that Paul is concerned with is uh, the... Uh, is those who are already married. In verse 10, to the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. In other words, this is an issue about which our Lord himself has spoken, and he has spoken unequivocally. There is no question about this. Paul writes, a wife must not separate from her husband. Now, that word separate is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19 when he says, what God has joined together. We must not put asunder. That's the word for divorce in the ancient Roman world. A wife must not separate from her husband. But if she has 
Now, uh, you understand the situation in Corinth. There were men and women who were renouncing marriage because for, for ascetic reasons, feeling that this made them, this rendered them more favorable to God. There are others uh, who lived in that pagan environment who had already uh, gone through a divorce. Divorce was as uh, prevalent then as it is as it is now. And Paul says, if you have already divorced, uh, if she has, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce uh, his wife. This is a this is the fundamental position. Of scripture, It is a command. This is not uh, good advice. This is not one possible option. It is an apostolic decree. You notice how he puts it. To the married, I give this command. And so does the Lord. This is the fundamental position of all of scripture. Marriage is a till you die proposition. Doesn't make any difference how difficult it is. It is God's will that we remain, even in that difficult situation, it will deepen your relationship to God. It will show you things about yourself that you could, you could never understand or know otherwise. You'll grow in grace as you have never known, uh, as you have never grown before. And God is able to redeem even the most difficult situation. There is always hope. And that's why Paul says, either for those that have already divorced, to either remain uh, unmarried or to be reconciled. There is always hope that that situation can be uh, can be changed. Now I want you to look at Jesus' teaching on this uh, on this matter. Turn back to Matthew 19. It's important that we understand this because Paul is building on our Lord's instruction. Uh, Jesus had left uh, Galilee, and he now was. In the region of Judea, crowds were gathering. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, this wasn't a legitimate question. They weren't asking for information. They were trying to test him, as, as Matthew notes. In chess, this is what's called a fork. You're placed in a position where no matter what you do, you're going to lose a piece. That's what they were trying to do to Jesus. They were trying to divide his audience, force him to take sides so that uh, part of his following would dissipate. There were two schools of thought in Jesus' day. There was a stricter, rigorous uh, view uh, that was espoused by a rabbi uh, by the name of Shimei, who believed that there was only one cause for divorce, and that was marital unfaithfulness, infidelity. There was another much more popular a uh, much more widespread concept of uh, divorce and remarriage that was taught by Hillel, who is the more famous uh, rabbi, and as you know, was even uh, the Apostle Paul's rabbi for a period of time. And uh, he believed that you could divorce your wife for any any reason, whatever. You know, she burned the, burned the bagels, and you could you could you could divorce her. And divorce was very simple in those days. All you had to do is uh, simply say, "I divorce you. I divorce you," and and. That voided the contract, and you were out on the streets. And so what, what they were trying to do is force Jesus to take a position. Now, the interesting thing is that Jesus at first doesn't take a position. He says, in effect, we're not going to talk about divorce. Let's talk about marriage. Let's talk about how to stay together, not 
you know, what, what's the, what are valid and justifiable reasons for breaking up a marriage. I've learned from him to say the same thing when people come to me. They come into my office and they say, we want to talk about a divorce. And I say, no, you're talking to the wrong guy. I, there's a friend of mine that's an attorney that, that has an office down the street. You can go talk to him. We're not going to talk about divorce. If, if, you, if you're here to talk about divorce, you've got the wrong person. We're going to talk about how to be reconciled, what you can do in order to, to redeem your marriage. And you notice what, Jai, what, what our Lord does in verse 4. He says to this uh, group of scholars who were the best-read people of the ancient world, haven't you ever read, he said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. There is this indivisible, inseparable bond that we talked about last, last week. The two become one. That... In effect, when God made the woman, he divided the man in half. I think that's what's meant by taking her from his side. Not from his rib, but from his side. Divided him in half and made a new person. So that in marriage, what was originally one person becomes one person again. The two are united. That's an inseparable union. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Same same word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 7. It's an indivisible union. Divorce is like tearing off a part of your body, one of your vital organs. That's why divorce, divorce is one of the worst things you can do to your mind. Over half of the women who have gone through divorces, according to clinical psychologists, suffer from deep clinical depression for anywhere from five to seven years. It is a terrible, traumatic, hurtful thing. It is not just a matter of tripping off and finding someone else. It is terribly destructive, and that's what the Lord wants us to know. And the reason is it's God who joins those two together, you see. It's not the parson. It's not the judge. It's not the justice of the peace. It's God who joins them. What God has joined together, let no man separate. So they, uh, they respond by saying, well, then why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he says, no, whoa, you're not, you, have, you didn't read the, New, the Old Testament clearly. Moses did not command divorce. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. I've presided over a lot of failed marriages, and I can tell you that in every case, it's because someone in the relationship, one party in the relationship, has a hard heart. There are not any other causes. The issue is never really incompatibility. It's never ethnic backgrounds. It is hardness of heart. What's hardness of heart? Well, it's an unwillingness to submit to the will of God. In each and every case, Someone in the relationship simply will not soften their heart and do what God wants them to do. And when they will not soften their hearts, there's absolutely nothing you can do. That's when the marriage falls apart. And that's why Moses permitted men to write a bill of divorcement or women, whichever uh, case, because that was Moses' concern was primarily for women to protect them. He permitted the men to write a bill of divorcement so the women themselves would be protected when they went out into the world. But, 
But that was not God's intention from the beginning. So he makes that very clear. It was not this way from the beginning. Anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So here he does, there is an exclusion clause because adultery does destroy the union. Uh, He's not talking about one adulterous act. A man or woman can can slip into sin and and commit adultery and, and can be forgiven and and restored. It's terribly harmful. It's one of the most deleterious things you can do to a relationship. It destroys the intimacy that you have, but it can be it can be rebuilt. It can be restructured. You can learn trust again. But where there's a lifestyle of unfaithfulness, a pattern, you see, of, of infidelity, then uh, that's that's uh, there's a very hard heart there that will not submit to the will of God. And that, in the end, destroys the marriage. And our Lord says, that person then, the person, the injured party in that relationship is then free to remarry. But that's the only exclusion, you see. Uh, the, the, the pattern is to stay with the marriage, no matter how difficult it is. And that's why the disciples respond by saying, if this is the case, it's better not to marry. If, if we have to stay with this hard, difficult, arduous uh, task, then it's better. We're better off being married, and Jesus, uh, not being married, and Jesus as well. That's not a gift everyone has received. We'll talk more about that next week. Now, uh, let, let me say this because I, I want you to understand that 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 we know here that some marriages are extremely difficult and dangerous. We have never, nor would we ever, ask any man or woman to stay in a situation where their life is in danger, where, there's, where there is physical abuse uh, that's going on, where there is intense, extreme verbal abuse, and certainly not where the children themselves are, are at stake if they're being abused. We counsel intervention and separation and counseling in the hope that the uh, marriage can be salvaged. The abusing person can change, and we believe that they can change. Love hopes all things. God can change the heart of the most abusive man or, or woman. It's possible to change. But we would never ask anyone to stay in, in an abusive situation. Someone long ago pointed out that, uh, uh, it was Augustine, I think, in the beginning, who pointed out when, that when Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek, that he was not talking about uh, a physical assault, but rather an insult, a backhanded slap. Because given the fact that most people in the world are right-handed, if someone throws a punch at you, that hits you on the left cheek. Now, I don't know what to make of that, except to say that we do not have to submit to assaults. The Bible does not. Uh, command us to subject ourselves to dangerous situations. We, we would counsel in that case a period of separation and counsel so that the couple can get the help that they need. I, if, this is a, a kind of a crude analogy, but uh, I think it well pictures what's at stake. I think God puts a man and a woman in a locked room and he gets in there with them, and he throws away the key, and he says, now the three of us are going to work this thing out. 
No matter what it takes, we're going to learn how to communicate. We're going to learn how to give. We're going to learn what it means to love as Christ loves His church. We're going to work at this thing through weal and woe, through better or worse, through richer or poorer, through sickness or health. No matter what it takes, we're going to stay with this thing until we can we work it out. And we begin to grow. Marriage is one of the greatest institutions for spiritual growth, I can imagine. Because it is the most intimate of all relationships and the most difficult of all relationships at times. And you learn patience and you learn to love people that are not always lovable. And you learn tolerance for people's foibles and weaknesses and failures. And you grow as you, could, as you never thought uh, you would grow. Now, uh, Paul turns to those who are married to uh, non-Christians. To the rest, he says in verse 12, I say this, I, not the Lord. Now, he's not setting up two levels of authority here. He's not saying that, uh, that this, uh, this command is of lesser uh, significance. The apostles um, had the same authority as, as our Lord. What he is saying here is that this is a subject about which our Lord has said nothing. But the apostles were very clear that their authority was equal to that of, of the Lord. Uh, when Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, he said, When, I, when you receive my words, you receive them not as the word of men, but as they really are, the word of God that is at work among you. So uh, we cannot take lightly the word of an apostle. Uh, this is binding upon us just as his word uh, to uh, those that are married. To the rest, that is, those that are married to unbelievers. I say this, I, not the Lord. If a brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. I think what was behind this issue was that there were people in Corinth who were saying that we are defiled by being married uh, to a non-Christian. And therefore, we should renounce this marriage and give ourselves to celibacy or marry to someone who is a Christian. What Paul does is turn this thing on its head. He says, no. You will not be defiled by the non-Christian. The, the non-Christian will be sanctified by your presence in the home. Let's read on. Um, and if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live, her, uh, live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is... They are holy, or they are sanctified, the same word that's used earlier and translated that, uh, that way. What, what is Paul saying? Is uh, the mate, a uh, non-Christian mate uh, of a Christian, automatically brought into a relationship with Christ? No, he's not saying that at all. He's saying that the presence of a believing man or woman in a house sets apart the unbelieving partner uh, in a unique way, because they have an opportunity then to see the grace of God embodied in a human life. There's light there. It's the same argument that Peter uses. And he writes to women who had non-Christian husbands, and they're asking, what should we do to win our husbands? What can we say to them? And Peter says, don't say anything. They will be won without a word by your behavior. Your Christ-like behavior in the midst of that, uh, in that home, you see. And your children are sanctified as well because they have an opportunity to see the invisible Christ made visible in the person 
of the believer. The same sort of thing that happened with Joseph when he was placed in Potiphar's home. Potiphar's house prospered because of Joseph's righteousness. And a non-Christian living in a non-Christian home has a unique opportunity to make a spiritual impact upon that home. But Paul says, if the unbelieving partner does not want to remain in that relationship, then by all means, let them go. Let them go. Because we were called to peace. Don't make this a difficult uh, situation. Just let them go. Now, I have read a number of commentaries on this passage. And uh, the preponderance of, of, uh, of authors uh, take this word bound to mean that they are not any longer bound in marriage. In other words, the Christian partner who is abandoned or divorced and left behind is free to remarry. So you have a second basis for divorce and remarriage. The first is adultery. The second is abandonment or divorce by a non-Christian uh, partner. This is the position that we as a church uh, have taken. Now let's look at verses 39 and 40. <clears throat> and we'll wrap this up quickly. Paul's word now to those whose spouses have deceased or deceased. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. So glad he put that in there. It's a nice little tagline. We tend to read over that without thinking, uh, without taking it seriously. But what Paul is saying that uh, is that if your spouse uh, has gone home to be with the Lord, then you are free to remarry anyone. Ah, he says, just be sure that it's in the Lord, that it, this is someone that the Lord has chosen for you. Again, it's not your business to find a mate. He will bring that mate to you. And uh, it, will be, uh, it must be someone that embodies the character and the qualities of life that you're looking for in a, in a mate. However, he says, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And we want to, as I say, we want to spend quite a bit of time next week talking about that phrase and what it means to remain uh, with God. So there you have a third basis for remarriage, adultery, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse and, uh, and, and death. Now, according to the U.S. Bureau, uh, Census Bureau, a half, one half of all marriages fail. Those are the most recent statistics that I could dig up. Actually, the, the statement is, is worded incorrectly. It's not marriages that fail, it's people that fail. And uh, I, I sense that, uh, that, that a lot of you are feeling an immense amount of guilt and misgivings about your past. If the statistics are correct, then a large percentage of people here in this, in this audience have gone through the trauma of divorce. You know the pain of it. You know what it's, what it's cost you. And uh, you look back on that with, uh, with real sorrow and heaviness of, of heart. But I want you to know again that whatever is past is past. It's forgiven. It's all part of the, of the burden of guilt that our Lord bore on the cross. And whenever we look at that cross, we need to remember that every day is, is a fresh start. 
Some of you have been involved in adulterous affairs, and, 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 it, and it's flawed your, your marriage. Well, the same is true of you, that that adultery has been placed on the cross, and, and you have a fresh new start, a new beginning. And you can begin to rebuild that relationship no matter how, how difficult it is. God gives us the grace to do what he calls us to do. He never calls us to do anything without enabling us. And I, I want to close by reading something from Diane Medved's little book, The Case Against Divorce. Diane Medved is the wife of Michael Medved, who is the media critic, the man that has taken on Hollywood, uh, as you may know, and uh, has done a remarkable job, really, of, of calling them to, uh, to account uh, for what they're doing to our culture. And uh, his wife... Uh, is a practicing clinical psychologist, has a Ph.D. in clinical psychology. She started out writing this book, as she explains in the foreword, to provide a case for divorce. But as she began to interview various people that were the victims of divorce, she began to realize how traumatic, how damaging uh, it, it, it was to them. And uh, she changed her mind. And this last chapter is entitled, A Few Good Reasons to Stay Together. And one of the reasons is because, as she puts it, I don't have the heart to hurt him. Now, what, what she's talking about, I think, is uh, compassion, genuine compassion. She, like all of us, is concerned about the, our compassionless society. Jesus said, because of the wickedness of many, the love of many will grow cold. And... Uh, uh, when she raises this issue, she says, we're, we're staying together because I don't have the heart to hurt her. She says, bravo, bravo. At last, there's someone with a little compassion in the world. And then she tells a story, and I, I want to read it to you. A teacher of mine married a feisty woman 40 years ago. Two years after their marriage, she contracted polio, which left her unable to walk and with permanent severe respiratory problems. As time went by and her once-valued attitude wore thin, she became harder to live with. Her sense of humor became sarcastic. She became demanding, then finally complaining. She turned from an active optimist to a depressed pessimist. And whenever I visited her, I left weary with defeat. My teacher lived with her ailment for 38 years, supportively, unflaggingly reliant. He pushed her wheelchair, made sure she read the newspaper, and had visitors by the score. Many of the visitors, myself included, made the trek to their palatial home more out of gratitude to our teacher than to visit the grousing wife, who kept telling us how her demise was imminent and her improvement a myth. I considered it the most selfless devotion that my teacher never complained, never withdrew. Once I asked him how he could stand putting forth so much effort for what appeared to be so little reward. I do it because I'm obligated to, he replied matter-of-factly. He took his marriage vows seriously, never considering that he could be rid of all the heartache and inconvenience simply by getting a divorce. And yet he was no martyr. The inner strength and moral benefits he he received were apparent in his gift for teaching and his amazing ability to synthesize deep and profound texts 
in the messages helpful to all who studied with him. And he was the one who told me how, after 38 years of caring for his wife, he had become so connected, so attached, that he loved her all the more. He was fiercely protective of her, blinded by his bond to the extent that he could not understand why others deemed her difficult. He became immune to her complaints and focused joyously on her small triumphs. My teacher didn't think about whether or not he should love his wife. He took his responsibilities as givens, acted as if he were in love with her, and voila, he felt more intimacy and love than if he had only responded to his wife's benevolence. He couldn't hurt her, couldn't leave her defensive, defenseless. He stuck around out of just the sort of charitable tie that a soft heart provides. That means he's a great husband, not a chump. And a happy husband, too. Let's pray. Father, I sense for all of us that this falls under the, this teaching falls under the category of one of those hard sayings which, which so trouble the apostles, but which in the end are the kindest sayings of all. I would pray for all of us that you keep our hearts soft. That despite the pressures around us to jettison our marriages and walk out of difficult situations, that we would, that we would keep our contract. That we would view our vows as sacred ground. And that we would simply refuse to see them in any other way. And through the hard and difficult marriages... Uh, difficult uh, days that lie ahead, no matter what it will cost us, no matter what we must endure. Give us, Lord, that heart that's willing to change, willing to submit to your will, willing to do whatever is necessary to love our spouses in the way that you love us. You never break your promises to us. May we never break our promises to one another. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.